and turning your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We read Matthew chapter 3 together, verses 1 through 17, and particularly asked you to mind verses 13 through 17 and the baptism of the Lord Jesus. But now I want to read in your hearing John 3 and verses 31 through 36. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is of the earth, and of the earth he speaketh. He that cometh from heaven is above all. What he hath seen and heard, of that he beareth witness, and no man receiveth his witness. He that hath received his witness hath set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for he giveth not the Spirit by measure. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath eternal life, but he that obeyeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The Spirit is not given by measure. These words are said in connection with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And in relation to what we have read concerning the baptism of Jesus give to us something of a summary of our Lord's baptism by John the Baptist and particularly his anointing as the Christ. We have been studying together a particular catechism from the 17th century, a Baptist catechism written by a pastor for his church, the church to which he was called. It is an orthodox catechism, and it is an um, adaptation of the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563 and adopted by the Reformed churches of the Netherlands, particularly at the Synod of Dort, in the 17th century and subsequently has been one of the confessional documents of the Dutch Reformed churches, uh, not only in the Netherlands, but also here in the States. And we come in particular to question 30 this morning of that catechism. And we find ourselves in the catechism's exposition of that phrase from the Apostles' Creed that we believe, that I believe, in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. The Catechism explains, first of all then, the significance of the names and titles of 
Jesus Christ. The name Jesus, and we looked at questions 28 and 29 last Sunday and sought to understand the significance of the name Jesus, that name meaning Savior. For it is he, we're told in the scriptures, that will save his people from from their sins. And now we come to question 30, which is an exposition of the name, the title, Christ, that is anointed. If Jesus is his personal name, a name meaning Savior, Christ is his official name. If Jesus, that name tells us who he is and what he does in the most basic and general terms, then the name, the title, Christ tells us more about this person, but particularly how he saves. If Jesus means Savior, Christ, meaning anointed or Messiah, tells us the means or the mode by which this one Jesus Christ saves sinners. And this particular name, Christ, meaning anointed, is not a name given to him like any name at random. It is specifically chosen, it is specifically ordained, and it is specifically given to him to impress upon us, yes, something more of the identity of our Savior but ultimately to underscore something of his office, his function. What it is that he was sent to do, what it is that he came into this world to do, namely to be the only mediator between God and sinful men. Himself God, himself man, The one Christ who reconciles and unites God to men and men to God forever. And as we think about what is said concerning the Lord Jesus in Matthew 3 and in John 3, these two particular texts draw attention to the anointing of Jesus Christ, by which Jesus is shown to be the one Christ, the one ordained by the Father and equipped by the Spirit, according to his human nature, to be the mediator the surety. And included in this anointing, we have an indication that he, in order to save us from our sins as the mediator, is for us, is towards us, a prophet, a priest, and a king. And not just any prophet, but the chief and final prophet 
given by God for his people. Not just any priest, but the great high priest. A priest not of the order of Levi, but a priest of the order of Melchizedek. An eternal priest. An effectual priest. The great high priest. And not just any king. But the king. Great David's greater son. Who in establishing his kingdom. Draws us to himself. By his spirit. And governs us by that same word and spirit. Included in this name Christ. Included in this name anointed then. Is a twofold reality. The eternal appointment of the Son of God to be the mediator and in the fullness of time the anointing of the Son incarnate according to his human nature in which then he is signified to be the one, the one who will bring us needy sinners to God. And give to us eternal life. Now, as we come to this truth, and as we come to consider something of what it means to say that Christ is the anointed mediator, the prophet, priest, and king of the church, we are drawing on a large uh, swath of biblical truth. These realities are spoken of throughout the scriptures, gathered up together and providing for us this clear truth regarding the person and the office of the Lord Jesus. But there are two particular things that we want to notice from John chapter 3 and verses 31 through 36 Regarding the office of Jesus Christ. Regarding why it is that he is called Christ. Why it is that he is called the anointed. And both of these will take us into other parts of scripture. That we can only touch upon. Unless we want to preach this particular question and answer of the catechism for months if not years but sparing us that we'll come to this particular text and notice two things that certainly again can be fleshed out in much greater detail but here we want to understand them in principle precisely so that we might understand who our savior and mediator is There is nothing more important in our lives than to understand who Christ is. And we'll see that underscored as well this morning. But two things. First of all, 
We want to understand something of his unction, Christ's unction. Unction is just a fancy word for anointing. Anointing or setting apart. We might even refer to this as his sanctification. But lest we avoid confusion by piling up words, we speak of his unction because he is anointed. The scriptures speak about his anointing, both by way of promise and by way of realization. By way of promise, according to Psalm 45 and verse 7, by way of promise, even Psalm 2 and verse 6, by way of promise as well, Isaiah 59, Isaiah 61, and several other places. Even the particular aspects of his office, prophet, priest, and king, even the prophets and the priests and the kings of the Old Testament were anointed with oil in anticipation and in promise of the one whom they foreshadowed, the prophet, the priest, the king of the church of God, who was anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit above measure. And this is precisely what the language of the text indicates. John 3, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. Here is something of his function that we'll get to momentarily. But in terms of his unction, he is set apart to fulfill that function. That is, he is anointed for this purpose to speak the words of God for or because he, that is God, giveth not the Spirit by measure. The Holy Spirit, in general, is never parsed out. When God sends the Spirit into our hearts, using the language of Galatians 4, He is not sent in part. Now we experience the effects of His working over time as we grow in grace, but the Spirit Himself is not parted out. He is not given by measure, but He is given in the fullness of His person and in the fullness of His particular personal operation. And this is said of the one whom God hath sent, of the one who speaks the words of God. And who is this but Jesus? Who is this but the very one that John has spoken of already in his gospel? The one who is the only begotten Son of the Father. The Word who became flesh. Now as we think of who this one is, as we think of His anointing with the Holy Spirit, we need to understand that Jesus is anointed 
with the Spirit, by His Father in His baptism, according to His human nature. That is, Jesus, as true God, has no need for the Spirit. He, in the mystery of the Holy Trinity, already knows the Spirit personally, fully, completely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true and living God, there is nothing hidden from the Son concerning the Spirit and vice versa. And so, as true God, the Son, we might put it badly, has no need to be anointed with the Spirit. But as the Word who has become flesh, as the Word who has become flesh who dwells among us, the very one in whom we behold the glory of the Father, the one who speaks the words of God as a man to men, is equipped with the Spirit, is anointed with the Spirit, and is so specifically as a way of identifying Him as the one set apart to be the mediator, to be the Messiah, to be the prophet, priest, and king of the church. His unction, his anointing in his baptism and his unction, his anointing with the Spirit above measure serves to identify him in his calling, in his vocation, in what it is that he, the Son of God, has come into the world to do. To use the language of John 3, to speak the words of God. His anointing in the fullness of time, according to his humanity, shows him to be the one Israel was looking for. The one that God promised to his people, beginning in the aftermath of the fall, to Adam and Eve when he promised the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, and subsequently from generation to generation to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel through Moses and all of the prophets. He is shown to be the one that they expected, the one that God had promised, He is shown to be even the one whom God had appointed. Jesus' anointing 
Not with oil as the prophets, priests, and kings of old, but Jesus anointing with the Holy Spirit above measure signifies Him as the one who was set apart from all eternity to come into the world and to proclaim and purchase eternal life for sinners. So there is a kind of twofold significance to our Lord's anointing. There is, in the fullness of time, in His baptism by John the Baptist, there is the public identification and public equipping of Jesus, the one born of a woman, born under the law, the public identification of Him as the long-promised mediator, as the King promised over and over again, as the prophet who was promised in Isaiah 61, the one of whom it is said, The Spirit of the Lord rests upon me to proclaim the day of the Lord, liberty to the captives and the like. He has identified in the fullness of time among men as the one who for men would speak the words of God to them as God himself. And at the same time is identified as the one who was appointed, ordained to this calling from all eternity. The catechism speaks of his being ordained of the Father and anointed of the Holy Spirit. And not just once, but speaks of it with reference to his ordination and anointing as the prophet, ordination and anointing as high priest, and ordination and anointing as king. His ordination, as our confession summarizes the matter, in chapter 8 and paragraph 1, it pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Now why is it important to stress His eternal ordination. In addition to his earthly anointing. His earthly unction. Well, first of all, because it's true. Psalm 2 and Psalm 45 as quoted and interpreted by the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9 in that overall context indicates that this anointing 
that men beheld in the baptism of Jesus is indicative of an anointing, as it were, an appointment from all eternity. But it's also significant because it reminds us that not one aspect of our salvation is accidental, happenstance, even reactionary on the part of God. God is not caught off guard by Adam's fall into sin, difficult as it may be to understand how that all happens. God is not caught off guard when his creatures rebel, when the first Adam plunges the human race into the misery of sin. No, he has appointed from all eternity his own son to be the second Adam, the one who would come, the one who would come and deliver us from our ignorance, our sinful ignorance, by opening up unto us the secret counsel and all the will of his Father concerning our redemption. He is the one who from all eternity was ordained to be that one and only sacrifice who by the sacrifice of that body has redeemed us and who continually makes intercession to his Father for us. He was ordained and anointed from all eternity a king who rules us by his word and spirit and defends and maintains that salvation which he has purchased for us. The one whom men beheld rising from the waters of John's baptism, the one upon whom the spirit lighted upon his rising from the waters of baptism, and the one of whom it was said by the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, is the one who was purposed to come from all eternity. Even the apostles in their preaching speak of Jesus speak of the significance of the name of Christ in this way, quoting even the scriptures, quoting Psalm 110. The Lord, as Peter puts it in verse 34 of Acts chapter 2, for David ascended not into into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. And he announces, let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom ye crucified. This making of him as both Lord and Christ certainly involves his resurrection 
but it is a making in time of what was made or appointed from all eternity. He was appointed to be both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom he crucified. Quoting Psalm 2 in chapter 4. Upon the anointing of Jesus, or in reference to the anointing of Jesus, or his being the anointed of the Lord. Verse 27, for a truth in this city against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do what? To do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained to come. Pass. The anointing of Jesus takes place in time, but it is the fulfillment of an eternal appointment. For him, this one, the Son of God eternal, who comes into this world and takes upon himself our flesh, unites it to his person, and for us speaks the words of God. To us, for us, purchases eternal life for us, who for us intercedes even now at his Father's right hand, and who for us rules and reigns by his word and spirit in his church. Christ is named Christ because he is the anointed one. Appointed from eternity. Set apart in time. Set apart by an anointing with the Spirit above measure. Set apart as the one in whom his own beloved Father is well pleased. Set apart to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. And so, not only do we need to think in terms of the unction of Christ, the unction, again, which identifies him, furnishes him for his office, an unction which is well summarized by our confession, chapter 8, paragraph 3, the Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety. His is an unction by appointment, an unction in sanctification, an unction which furnishes him with everything he needs to be our mediator. But it is an unction which identifies his function. And so secondly, not only Do the scriptures speak of the unction of Christ, 
his appointment from eternity, his setting apart and furnishing in the fullness of time, but also his function, what it is that he does. And the catechism summarizes well that he is anointed, ordained and anointed, set apart to be the chief prophet and teacher, to be the great high priest, and to be the king of his people. He is, as a mediator, prophet, priest, and king. And there's a respect in which, in John chapter 3, the emphasis, we might say, falls upon his prophetic function. The one who speaks the words of God. This reflects even what John has already said, at least in the prologue of his gospel, that this is the one who hath declared his father. He is the one through whom grace and truth comes. John 1 and verses 17 and 18, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. The eternal Son, the Word, became flesh. And He did so, so that as anointed, Grace and truth might come through him, indeed, that he might declare his Father, that he might declare grace and truth from the Father. Now, this declaration of which John speaks, which is part and parcel of his prophetic function, this declaration is a declaration of the Father's grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ, which includes his Suffering unto death and making satisfaction for sin. It includes what he does as a priest. And it includes what he does as a king, as the one who rules over all things for the sake of his church. And so while the explicit reference in John chapter 3 is his prophetic function... By implication, we find as well his priestly and royal function. And what we ought to understand is that these functions are most necessary. We need a prophet sent from God to speak to us the words of God because we are ignorant of those words. Not ignorant of the display of God's eternity in nature. But ignorant as a consequence of sin. The mind darkened in sin. The heart corrupt in sin. Unable even in the state of sin to see creation for what it is. Even worse, unable to deliver ourselves from that state of sin. And so Christ, the anointed, 
is sent into the world to be anointed and as the one who has the Spirit, not by measure, to speak the words of God, to speak the saving words of God, to reveal the words of God, the truth of grace and the grace of truth, and to open up our darkened minds to that truth. And give us grace. In fact, Jesus speaks in Luke chapter 4. There on that occasion, he enters into the temple. He takes the scroll. He opens it to Isaiah chapter 61. And quotes Isaiah 61. That passage which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, a reference to his anointing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, because he anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then... What does Jesus do? He closes the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down. As all the eyes of those who are in the synagogue are fixed upon him, what does he say? This day, today, hath this scripture been fulfilled in your ears. Jesus comes and is anointed as the Christ To proclaim the gospel. To proclaim the gospel to the poor, to the needy. To proclaim release, redemption to the captives. To proclaim the recovery of sight to the blind. To bring liberty, redemption to them that are bruised. To declare the year of salvation. The day of salvation. And he does it as the one who himself purchases that salvation, procures that salvation. How is liberty granted to those in bondage? How is sight given to the blind? How are the poor granted good tidings? How are captives released through The satisfaction of Christ through his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection. And as the ascended one, as the great high priest of his people, he continues to intercede. This is the whole book of Hebrews and its exposition in particular of Psalm 110 and verse 4. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand Till I put all enemies under your footstool. He is. It is said in that place. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Based upon an eternal oath. Based upon his unending life. 
based upon the fact that He is holy, harmless, and undefiled, this Christ is the great high priest of the order of Melchizedek. The one who makes satisfaction for sin and intercedes for His people. As a prophet... He deals with our ignorance. As a priest, he deals with our iniquity. And as a king, moreover, then he deals with the fact that we are indolent, unruly. As a prophet, he reveals. As a priest, he reconciles. And as a king, he rules over all things for those whom he has reconciled. We'll get into this more in subsequent weeks. But I would encourage you to read this particular question and answer of the Catechism, to follow the particular biblical references that are there, and they will open up to you the fact, the truth, the reality. Indeed, the Scriptures teach it. We are called to believe it. That this one Jesus, the Savior, is anointed as the Christ, Because from eternity he was purposed to be the mediator. And in the fullness of time he came to be the mediator. And as the mediator he fulfills a calling of prophet. Not just any prophet, the final prophet, the chief prophet. He fulfills this calling to be priest, to interpose and to intercede. And he fulfills this calling as king all again. Because He, the Son Eternal, was appointed to become the Son Incarnate and to be our prophet, priest, and king. Why is this important? Well, it's important because it's been made known. Jesus Christ The one anointed with the Spirit above measure was anointed with the Spirit above measure in order to speak the words of God to men. To sinners who needed to hear. To hear the gospel. To hear glad tidings. To hear liberty. To hear of sight for the blind. To hear release. Redemption. It's important to know this great high priest through whom, through whom alone we have access to God. And it's important to know this king, this one, the Lord's anointed, who comes. To bless those who take refuge in Him, according to Psalm 2. It's important then, in terms of information, it's important as well in terms of correction, that is, correcting us from any false notions we might have concerning Christ, concerning how it is that this one and this one alone saves us from our sins. 
He saves as a mediator. He saves as a prophet. Saves as a priest. Saves as a king. But it is important as well in terms of our salvation. If this is how he saves us, if this is how he saves sinners, by opening the sight of the blind to the wondrous truth of a God who through his Son saves sinners, then this is the one whom we need to know. If he is the one who speaks the words of God, as the Savior, as the Mediator, as the Surety, then we need to know Him. We need to believe Him. We need to hear those words which are words, the Gospel writer reminds us, are words of eternal life. Words upon which your and my everlasting blessedness hang. He that believeth On the Son hath eternal life. The Son eternal. The Son incarnate. The Son who is anointed according to His humanity. Above measure to speak the words of God. Words of grace and truth. Words of eternal life. Words concerning Himself purchasing eternal life. And bestowing eternal life upon needy. Ignorant, rebellious, and unruly sinners. He that believeth on the Son, he that believeth on the Anointed One hath eternal life. Do you believe? We've only scratched the surface of the significance of this name Christ, but it's enough. And what the Scriptures teach is enough. Do you believe? And I ask that question not so that those of you who do believe and perhaps have believed for some time would now doubt. Well, do I really? No, because as much as the knowledge of this name Christ is significant in terms of salvation, it is significant in terms as well for you, dear believer, for your consolation, for your comfort. It is given for you to know that in this one, the Christ, God himself has supplied according to his ordination, according to his appointment. And he has supplied with evident signs in the setting apart of this one. He has supplied for every need that you have. Not one thing is missing from your salvation. Why? Because the Savior is the Christ. He is your prophet who declares the will of God concerning salvation and who opens your mind to that truth. He is the Christ who by the laying down of His own Life and making himself a sacrifice for sins secures your eternal redemption. 
And who even now, while we wait for his coming again, is seated at his Father's right hand and is interceding for you. He is the priest, the great high priest, whose merits are powerful and whose merits plead for you. And he is the king who takes you unruly as you are. And by his word and spirit gathers you into his church. And rules over you. Not as a despot, as a dictator. But as one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And as a king as well, defends and maintains that salvation which he has purchased for you. He says to you, dear believer, even as he says to his disciples on the eve of his ascension. He says to you, dear church, lo, I am with you, even unto the end of the age. Your salvation and my salvation is most certain because Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray.